Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Uh, today, I'm talking to Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, the author of Even As We Breathe, which is out now from the University Press of Kentucky. For a full transcript of this episode, check out the show notes on readingwomenpodcast.com. Uh, or in the description of this podcast. Also, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So I am so thrilled and honored that uh, Annette was up for coming on the podcast. I am just a huge fan already, and I just finished her book yesterday, and I still can't, I can't stop thinking about it. And so being able to talk to her today was just absolutely fabulous. I heard about Annette's book last fall, but I really became very excited for it when I saw an event with her and Silas House, her editor, and I've been reading a lot of Appalachian literature this year just to try to be able to visit home during the pandemic. And so when I heard about Even As We Breathe, I was very, very excited It definitely feels like a combination of two of the things that I love. I live in the South now. I am about an hour, an hour and a half away from Asheville, North Carolina, where this book is set. And I'm also Appalachian. And so being able to see all of these different things in a single book uh, really hit home for me. There's also the fact that this book is written by an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And how that this is one of hopefully many books to come from um, the this band of the Cherokee Nation. And so I'm so excited for that as well. It's incredibly written. The prose is phenomenal. I would just sit and like reread sections. And the novel really transports you to a different time, a different place. And it just has that beautiful quality that great novels have. And so I am so excited for Annette and for hopefully this is the first of many novels that she will write. And um, I'm excited for her, her career and all things. Uh, So definitely go out and get a copy of this book. A little bit about Annette before we start our conversation. Like I mentioned, she is an enrolled member of the Eastern Band Cherokee Nation, um, and she lives in North Carolina right now. This is her first novel. Uh, And like we talk about a little bit in in the interview, her first manuscript, Going to Water, is the winner of the Morningstar Award for Creative Writing from the Native American Literature Symposium and a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. After serving as executive director of the Cherokee Preservation Foundation, Annette returned to teaching English and Cherokee Studies at Swain County High School. She is a former co-editor of the Journal of Cherokee Studies and serves on the Board of Trustees for the North Carolina Writers Network. So she is very accomplished, incredibly talented, and I hope you love listening to our conversation as much as I love talking to Annette Snook Clapsaddle. All right. Well, welcome, Annette, to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you about your book today. Thank you for having me. So I feel like the big question right now is, how are you doing? How are you hanging in there? 
I'm doing all right. Um, I'm a teacher in a public high school. Um, and so this was the first week we had students back in our classrooms and they're, they're kind of part time. And so I'm pretty exhausted um, <laughs> between that and the, the book launching soon. So, um, but, but things are going well um, as, as well as can be expected right now. Yeah. Yeah. So what grades do you teach? So, um, on, in any given year, I might have ninth grade through 12th grade, freshmen through seniors. This year specifically, I've got 10th graders through 12th graders. Oh, awesome. Is there any particular, like, you know, field or specialties that you teach or you just teach them the general subjects um, for high school? So I teach um, high school English um, and Cherokee studies. This year we're not, we're not teaching Cherokee studies um, because our language instructor, uh, because part of our instruction is virtual and it's, uh, it's difficult to, um, coordinate with a Cherokee language instructor who comes in from the outside. So I'm teaching world literature and um, advanced placement literature and composition. Oh, that sounds amazing. That might just be the English major in me, but (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like a lot of people have, uh, you know, these stories about books they didn't enjoy that they were asked to read, but I typically enjoyed almost every book that I was asked to read (laughs) for school. So, um, yeah, definitely a nerd there for sure. But I, I always love to ask debut authors, um, about kind of like your publishing story and how you came to publish your first novel. Cause I feel like getting your foot in the door with that first book is always a difficult journey. It can take um, a very long time. So, I, I guess, how was your, even as we breathe, how did it come to be published and how long were you working on it? Sure. Yeah. So I, I kind of think about the journey of this book, starting with the novel manuscript I wrote before it, um, because this, this would be the, the second um, full-length manuscript I had. The first one was a a finalist for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction, and it won uh, another award from the Native American Literature Symposium. And so I felt like I was on a journey toward publishing with with the first manuscript and actually got some some attention from from that, but it never got published, and that's a whole other (laughs) long story. Um, but the fact that it didn't get published really propelled me into taking a workshop through the Great Smokies Writers Program, which is located in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the the western part of um, the state of North Carolina in the in the south. the The workshop was set up that we had a few assignments that we focused on throughout the course, which were to write a synopsis of a novel, um, which is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And, and to write the, to write a first chapter, a final chapter and a climactic chapter. And so that provided me, um, a structure for the novel and, um, really was a diversion from the first manuscript and that I was, you know, kind of had to shelf at that point. So it, it got me moving on to the second manuscript. 
And the instructor for the workshop, Heather Newton, was very encouraging. She was a, she's a writer herself. And so I was able to kind of workshop pieces of that novel and and begin writing it. And then um, I, I attend the Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is um, located in Hindman, Kentucky, um, just a little bit north of where I live. It's a writer's program in the summer. And so I um, workshopped the novel manuscript while I was um, at that writer's program. And through conversations with kind of the writers in residence there, the, the workshop instructors and whatnot, there there was some interest in the manuscript. So it was kind of it's kind of an unusual process because um the Hindman Settlement School, which is located in, in the state of Kentucky, was starting an imprint, a fiction imprint with the University Press of Kentucky. And they're identifying um, potential manuscripts that would fit that that imprint. And so I was able to talk with folks involved with that, and um, Rebecca Gale Howe asked for um, my manuscript while I was at that writer's workshop for her to review. So she then took it to University Press of Kentucky through their, their process for reviewing the manuscript. And they offered me a contract. So it's it's not a typical way. And you, you know, usually nowadays you look for an agent and then the agent tries to sell it to a publisher. Um, but it really was my participation and involvement with the um, Appalachian Writers Workshop that led to publication. Oh, that that is really fabulous. There have been so many writers recently that I have loved that have come out of Heinemann and it's really a a center for Appalachian literature and is really mm-hmm. uh, developing that in such a wide range of ways. I mean, I love Carter Sickles' book, The Prettiest Star, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with it because I'm from Appalachian, Ohio. And I was like, this is, mm-hmm. you know, this is home for me. Like, I, I see these places um, another author that came out of Heinemann is Silas House, who I believe edited yes. your book. What what was that like? Oh, it was a wonderful experience. I had uh, met Hi- uh, met Silas um, a couple of years, I guess a couple of years prior, um, and then worked with him on a project where we. Um, uh, we worked with some of our students at our high school, and and of course he's been involved with Heinemann for for many many years, and I knew him through there. And so uh, we had had some great conversations um, while at Heinemann, and so it was a natural fit when um, we started working on the novel because he understood exactly what I wanted to do. He understood and has been to, uh, spent time in the community um, that I was writing about. From the get-go, the communication was just so clear and we worked so well together. Plus, it was like my own personal MFA because the way that (laughs) Silas edits, and I, I think he would say he learned this from his editor, is that you know, he will look at a at a portion of the manuscript and he will say, uh, this isn't working. But then he says, and this is why it's not working. And then he says, 
this is how you might think about fixing it, <laughs> which is really phenomenal because usually, from what I understand from other writers, um, it's it's typical for an editor to say, this doesn't work, fix it. <laughs> so to have the, the extra steps that, that Silas provides, the thoroughness um, is just, is really remarkable you know, he always just makes suggestions. He's, you know, he's not there to take over your work. Um, but we just communicated so well. We have a similar style as well. We like to have deadlines and get it done and keep moving. So um, it was just a really pleasurable experience. And kind of, I was surprised by that because I had talked to other writers who did not have that experience with their editors. I attended a virtual event with um, the Heinemann was doing, and I really loved the conversation between uh, Silas and, and you as you were talking about the book and like your process. And so when my my family got together in a you know a, a lodge in the mountains of North Carolina, I took uh, Silas House's Appalachian trilogy. And even as we breathe together, and I was like, mm-hmm. I think this is this is a, a good way to do this. And I had, I had never read, you know, I hadn't read either of them. I try not to read synopses, and so when I started a parchment of leaves, where the main character is a Cherokee woman named Vine, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, like this is what we're doing. <laughs> and so it was really lovely to read the two together because, you know, even though those books were written 20 years ago, and I imagine there were things he would change in them now, like most writers feel about uh, their work, mm-hmm. you could feel that there were a lot of similar themes, especially in regards to place. So I wanted to ask you about place mm-hmm. in Even As We Breathe, because I'm dancing around spoilers a little bit, uh, but place and the <laughs> meaning of that uh, to County, the protagonist of the novel, uh, there's this deep connection, not just physically to his family, obviously living on the land, you know, for hundreds, and if not thousands of years, but also spiritually, there's like this spiritual connection to his home place. And so what was your thought process when you were writing that part of the book and the themes that went along with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think place is incredibly important in all of the writing I do, um, and and I don't I don't think about it separately. So I don't sit down and say, "Oh, I, I need to make sure that I am conveying place here." It just is kind of inherent in in my writing, and I don't, you know, maybe that is um, how I grew up or or whatnot. Um, but the one thing that I wanted to make sure that that I conveyed was that I think a sense of place is important for everyone, regardless of their cultural background or or where they grew up. Um, one of the stereotypes of native uh, Native Americans in general that that was perpetuated really early on in American literature was that Native people always lived in the woods, and there is like some kind of weird. Um, mystical connection um, that only Native people had to the environment. That can be a a, um, problematic stereotype. All stereotypes (laughs) can be problematic. It was really important to me that I balance the the truth of which is, you know, that these mountains, the Smoky Mountains, Appalachian Mountains, 
do influence our worldview. And for anyone who grew up here, who um, like my protagonist, County, his environment is going to influence his worldview, but it's not some kind of mystical connection just because he's Native American. He grew up in these mountains and so was you know, taught how to navigate them and interact with them. And it is part of our culture to respect our environment, to know that it has all the properties, you know, that we need for survival and and existence here, like you said, for thousands of years. So um, it was a balance for me to make sure that this didn't come across as um, some of the stereotypes come across, but also um, that place is very influential in in one's worldview. Yeah, and it, it would, there are some beautiful passages in the book about uh, the mountains. And, you know, I was reading this with my husband, uh, Sam, because um, like many listeners know, I have to use audiobooks or someone has to read it to me because of migraines. And so we read it together. And it was like one... 15 in the morning and I'm sitting on the edge of the couch and he's like reading these last few pages and he stops and he's like oh my word and I'm like what he's like you have what is this and I was like you can't read ahead you can't read ahead honey (laughs) and so he reads these last few pages which are about um you know, just bring the novel together. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's this beautiful sections about the mountains and County's connection and the realities of that and his feelings. And um, it was a beautiful way to end the book. And I, he closed the book and I was like, I have to ask her about place because um, that's just incredible. So I feel like your writing was very effective in, in communicating all of that. Well, I appreciate that. And it kind of ties back to what you know, you were asked about working with Silas. The end of the book changed a little bit just through conversations with Silas. It was almost like we were building up to the change throughout the editing process. It seemed natural at the end that that some of the changes were made. But I have a, a good writer friend, uh, Jeremy B. Jones, um, from the area. And he every time I would see him at an event or something, he would say, are you sick of your book yet? Are you sick of your book yet? Because he knew I was in the editing process. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm not. And I think part of it was because I was almost re I was reworking toward the end of it through the editing process. So it, it still felt new even by the end of the editing process to me. Um, it wasn't major shifts, but, uh, you know, as you kind of mentioned, it pulled together that sense of place that really felt right at the end. It was just beautiful. And one of the things that I really loved about your book is that um, it looks at Asheville. And I am not from the South, but I moved to Greenville, South Carolina. And so Asheville is about an hour, hour and a half, depending on traffic, uh, north of me. Um, And so I've been there. And so, you know, I could see a few different places. And Asheville is so quirky. It has this, you know, weird like surreal kind of history to it and your book is set during world war ii and a lot of diplomats and their families are guests or quote at, at this historic inn what drew you to setting your novel during this time period uh, when you know these diplomats were being held prisoner essentially um in this inn in Asheville, north carolina of all places um i had seen an article uh in the 
Asheville Citizen Times newspaper about the time that the movie Monuments Men came out that uh, was talking about the Biltmore Estate, um, which is um, uh, one of the Vanderbilt's um, grandiose homes. And it had held um, artwork during World War II um, safely. Um, it's kind of the same topic as Monuments Men had, had covered. And anyway, so the the um, newspaper article was talking about the Biltmore House and that artwork, but also had this brief little mention that the Grove Park Inn held access diplomats as prisoners of war um, one summer and on the, the estate of the Grove Park. So that really fascinated me because immediately I started thinking about citizenship and identity and how you can go from being a diplomat to a prisoner of war in a very short period of time. And it also reminded me that that some internment, Japanese internment camps during World War II were set up on Indian reservations out west. And I've always found that to be really interesting, how um, uh, citizenship and identity crisscross landscape. And so I thought, you know, Cherokee is just an today is just an hour away from Asheville. Of course, um, 1942, it took a little bit longer to get there, but it is still relatively close proximity. And Native Americans have always had um, a very tenuous um, citizenship rights um, within the United States. So I knew that the setting of a wartime of a upper class resort of foreign diplomats, and then you take, in this case, two Native Americans, and you you mix it all together, um, and that there has to be discussion about race and um, identity and um, citizenship that will have to take place. So. The setting really drove everything because um, it, it really was a catalyst for talking about those issues. I, I feel like it's almost one of those things that is like, did this really, it seems so wild and far-fetched, the idea that they might do this, but then it's like truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was there any particular research that you, you did for the book on this topic and, and time period? Yeah, I did some, but there I was unable to find a lot of um, a lot of information specifically about Grove Park Inn during that period and and what took place. There's one book um, out that is like the history of the Grove Park Inn that has um, a section in there about basically just confirming <laughs> that they held access diplomats as prisoners of war. There really isn't a whole lot of information on it, on that particular site. And the, most of my research was about, uh, was on the time period in the region. So what the landscape looked like, researching what products were available, you know, for just for detail's sake. What, you know, really trying to understand the relationship of race experiences of Cherokee people uh, in this region at that time, you know, what it might have felt like. And, and so I did, you know, 
a good portion of my research was um, looking at photos. I get a lot of information from just looking at photos I could find, but there, to my knowledge, there's very little out there that specifically talks about the the diplomats that were at the Grove Park. It sounds like a great like master's thesis project for a history student somewhere. <laughs> I found that part absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, we mentioned that it's set during World War II and County is not serving in the military, partially because of uh, he has a disability. And so I wanted to ask you about that, um, because as someone with a disability, I feel like I rarely see other characters uh, with disabilities on the page as a fully fleshed out you know, well-rounded characters. And not only is County incredibly well-rounded and well-written, he also has a visible disability, which I feel like it is often even more marginalized than uh, those of us with invisible disabilities. So uh, what was your process of writing County's experience uh, having a disability? Uh, And were there any particular challenges that you had while you were writing his character? Yeah, I appreciate that um, question. You're actually the first person who has brought that up, and I've had several interviews. So, you know, I think when I was thinking about County, it came very natural to me that that he would be dealing with with some kind of disability. Um, and I don't remember, you know, the the moment that it kind of struck me exactly what it would be, except that um, I wanted it to stifle him literally from moving with great speed, but metaphorically, like that's, he's trying to make that decision, right? Like how, where he wants to go, what direction he wants to go in um, and how quickly he wants to get there. So um, the, the disability is both literal and, and figurative um, for County. And I, you know, a lot of times while I was writing, it was out of my mind that, that he had a disability because it doesn't affect every aspect of his life. Um, but, but certainly when I was editing, you know, in early on, I would have to remember how it would affect him. For example, you know, if he's running through the woods, it's going to affect him differently than somebody without uh, that disability. But, you know, I like that that you can be reading the book and completely forget that that is part of him. You know, it doesn't define him, but a lot of it's a factor in his confidence. And, um, as a child, it's, I don't want to give away spoilers either, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) some family members refer to it and, and make him certain, feel a certain way about, you know, his own existence. But, um, I, you know, I think that long-term it, it affected his confidence and hopefully he overcomes that. I, I think you meant you mentioning how it also has a metaphorical meaning is a great example of what he's, you know, his life and what he's trying to do. And he's from a, a, a certain family situation, which again, dancing around spoilers, where I feel like that also kind of has stalled where he wants to go in life. And he's trying to figure that out. And I really liked how this is a summer story. There's something 
beautiful about a story that takes place over a single summer that changes someone's life. And I know I had that as a college age person. And it was really beautiful Mm -hmm. seeing that on the page in this way. And that, you know, is an important part of County's story. I mean, County could have been, I guess, hypothetically, a wide range of different ages. What drew you to having him be a young person at this sort of crossroads in his life? Mm-hmm. You know, there there are a few pragmatic reasons, just in terms of a timeline that I really had to stretch the timeline of his familial um, relationships and, you know, when he was born and events occurring. So that was part of it. But really, you know, as I mentioned, I teach high school. And so I have a soft spot for, you know, teenage boys who are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. And they have certain sparks that might not completely catch fire in the high school classroom, right? You know, they, you know that they're going to be all right in the end, um, but they might struggle, you know, in a classroom or something like that. So I've always, uh, I have an older brother, you know, that reminds me a lot of characters like this who just take a little while to become who they're meant to be. And so it, I think that that's what it is, you know, that my my teaching background um, and, you know, that I teach high school age kids. And I, it's really an incredible experience to see a student in your classroom who may not have it all together, but, you know, has a has a spark to them and then see them a few years later in the real world, so to speak, and they're just doing remarkable things because everything finally came together for them. You mentioned high school and, and people trying to figure out who they are, and I and I feel like this definitely is that that age where you change the most oftentimes in your life. And so I felt that his thought process and other characters who were similar age and they're trying to figure out their lives. It was really interesting to see all of those characters together and to compare and contrast them. And maybe I'm just still thinking as regards to like paper topics for, for uh, studying literature, but I really enjoyed seeing those foils there and seeing him figure things out for himself because he really is just, kind of wandering around and trying to figure it out. And this, all of this stuff happens in his life in a single summer, but it does give him direction, which I, I, I don't know. I just found that, I found that fascinating and it makes me want to go back and reread it and kind of like make notes and track things now. So I definitely need to do that in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I've seen talked about your book a lot is that, uh, to your knowledge, this is the first novel written by an enrolled member of uh, the Cherokee, Eastern Band Cherokee uh, Indians. Uh, what has that process been like? And what conversations have you had that has started because you've been working on this project and, and publishing it and it kind of being a landmark uh, work of, of literature? Yeah, so when I was writing it, there was at no point in time did I did I think, oh, this will be the first published novel <laughs> of a, you know, of a member of the Eastern Band. Um, it was really after, you know, after signing the contract and everything that I started um, thinking about it and, and double checked, you know, to make sure I hadn't missed anything. But 
one of the, I get the question all the time prior you know, to even this book. Um, I get the question all the time. Um, can I recommend, um, number one, can I recommend native writers, which is fairly easy to do, not as easy as I'd like it to be, but you know, who are some great native writers and I can do that. And then I'm asked to recommend, um, Cherokee writers, specifically Cherokee novelists. And I can do that to a certain extent. Um, there's at least a few names because there's the Cherokee nation of Oklahoma who has, uh, who have, um, several published novelists and I can't, and there's also the United Gadua band, which is the other fairly recognized Cherokee tribe, um, in the country. Um, but then I'm, then I'm often asked the question, can you recommend Eastern band writers? And I can, to some extent, identify, um, some short stories or poetry or essays, um, that some Eastern band writers um, have had published, but very few even in those other genres. And I have, and, you know, I always just have to look at people and say, there's not an Eastern man novelist. I can't give you a name. And so it, it's nice to at least be able to give one name now. Um, but it's also, you know, I also want to be careful um, in that, you know, I am just one voice um, from this tribe, and I certainly hope to represent my tribe authentically and honestly. I also know that, I, you know, I'm not the only perspective um, from our tribe, and I, and I certainly hope I'm not the only voice, you know, novelist voice for long. I hope that there are, there are many others, um, because all communities, all cultures are complex, and there's no way that um, my voice can represent all that. I'm sure there are upcoming artists and things coming out of those projects. Uh, are there anywhere that you would recommend that listeners check out to see what um, you know Cherokee Nation artists are doing and um, organizations that are, are working with that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of great work coming out of the region. Well, um, you know, there's there's kind of two questions there. One in terms of um, Cherokee more broadly speaking, so Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma or United Kadua uh, Band in Elson, Oklahoma, and certainly um, there are artists coming out of those spaces and the Eastern Band as well. Um, you know, there's there's certain publications that I think the general public may be less aware of like Indian Country Today, um, Native Peoples Magazine, you know, those kind of publications are dedicated to issues of Native peoples um, and may not be on everybody's radar. You know, it's still difficult to name a source of really where to to find uh, Native writers collectively. Um, The Institute of American Indian Art um, has a low res program that a lot of great writers are coming out of and, you know, checking out to see who, who is involved with them is a good start. Um, I will say there's a great, um, novel coming out right now as well from, uh, the Cherokee nation. It's, um, it is called Crooked Hallelujah and she is a, 
a a woman from the Cherokee Nation, the author of that book. Yeah, so it's it's difficult for me to just say, oh yes, go to this organization's website and you'll find out lots of information because that's part of the problem. You know, it's it's difficult to identify emerging Native artists as a collective and very and specifically as um, at, for Eastern Band Cherokee. I would recommend the the Cherokee author Kelly Jo Ford. Um, her new novel out is Crooked Hallelujah, and it's gotten um, a lot of great reviews. Well, before I let you go, um, I love to ask people we have on the podcast, uh, what uh, books are you reading right now and, and loving? Or are there any just books in general that you would recommend in addition uh, to, uh, I guess in this case, Kelly Jo Ford's book that we've already mentioned? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is um, a time of so many incredible books, um, especially by regional um, authors that are out right now. Um, I'm actually reading Car- Carter Sickles, um, The Prettiest Star. We, you and I had talked about this earlier um, before the podcast, um, which I picked up a little while ago, but I have this stack of regional writers <laughs> that I'm just trying to work my way through. So I just started it and I'm loving that. Um, there is a book called The Only Good Indian which is a horror novel, um, and I don't ever read horror, um, but I um, had heard really good things about that, and um, so I um, was reading, I read that book just recently and really enjoyed um, it as well and kind of a, a little um, break into that genre. And then... Um, I read earlier um, an advanced copy, but I wanted to mention it because it's, it's out now. Um, David Joy's novel "When These Mountains Burn" um, is is was really great, and I did read it a little bit earlier, but um, wanted to mention it because it's just out now. And then one more that I um, just finished: another uh, regional author, Leah Hampton, has a short story collection out, um, and its title is one that um, I don't know if I can say on your podcast. So you're laughing because you know what the title yes, is, yes. right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, when she was on the podcast, we just I, we just went for F face and other stories because. <laughs> okay, there you go. F face and other stories by Leah Hampton. I'm gonna I'm going to teach at least one of those stories in my classroom because. It is such a great example of the craft of short story and just really great humor um, in her writing. So uh, I've been reading a lot, trying to keep up with everything, but those are a few that that come to mind um, immediately. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you for coming and talking about your, your book today. I feel uh, very honored and, and so grateful that you were up for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
I'd like to give my heartfelt thanks to Nanette Snook Clap Settle for talking with me about her debut novel, Even As We Breathe, which is out now from the University Press of Kentucky. You can find her on Twitter at a bird sun and on Instagram at Annette Snook Clap Saddle, both of which will be linked in our show notes, as well as her website, AnnetteSnookClapsaddle.com. And of course, all of the rest of her information will be linked in our show notes. I'd like to give a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find me at KD Winchester. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.